0: Hello, and thank you for joining us as we launch a new season of To The Point with Portland. I'm David Davis, a senior advisor and consultant with Portland, with a background in political journalism and, yes, of course, sport. And our guest today, well, he's equally at home, believe you me, in both politics and sport. Andy Burnham, Mayor of Greater Manchester, you're very welcome. This is To The Point. Andy Burnham, I've worked out that I think I've known you for more than 20, probably 25 years, and even before you were a Member of Parliament. And perhaps I flatter myself, but we, I think, share twin passions for politics and football in particular. If I asked you which was your greater passion, what would you say? (laughs) Um...
1: I probably would say football. It's my first love, David. So, yeah, that's been the constant in my life. Politics was a sort of a, uh, a thing that grew later in life. But football has been ever-present in all of my 51 years. And by my reckoning, I think we first met properly in 1998, so 23, uh, 23 years ago. And I think we did have uh, instant common ground, didn't we, uh, in, <laughs> in the, the political or, or the politics of football, shall I say? And there's plenty of those, and, and you know all about that.
0: And probably the politics of football are greater than the politics of politics, <laughs> as I think <laughs> we used to say. But actually, there are similarities. It's always seemed to me between football and politics, not just because they cheer the winners and they boo the losers and this week's winners and next week's losers. But also, I would argue very seriously, that the gap between rich and poor is extreme in football and extreme in our country. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, I do. And you're right, there are real parallels. I often watch managers in terms of the way they handle the pressures of the the public domain and it's a very similar role i think uh, at times to the role of the of the politician and when it comes to football as a microcosm for society well yes you know uh, over the last 30 40 years the vested interests if you like have got hold of many things you know football being one of them and i think we've been through a period in this country when we've had to question whether things are being truly run in the public interest or are they being running the interest more of some than others and I think football certainly found itself in those debates over recent years and you and I were were there weren't we when we were digesting the very early effects of the creation of the the Premier League and it's a mixed picture isn't it David you know the the football industry of 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 England has put the country on the map it puts our cities on the map probably more than anything else does but at the same time it it comes at a, a cost as well and um I think our, you know, our game has has been a little too much in the grip of of certain uh, private vested interests, and sometimes the public interest has suffered as
0: a result. As culture secretary in Gordon Brown's government, I mean, you discovered what it was like to be booed inside a, a football ground, notably at Anfield, and not just because you were an Evertonian, of course. And yet, you know that for sure reopened the whole issue of what really happened to those who died in the the awful Hillsborough disaster. It always seemed to me that for you was a life-changing experience. Is that right?
1: It, it definitely was. I mean, you've absolutely um, called that correctly. So I was at the other semi-final uh, on the 15th of April 1989. I was at Villa Park watching Everton beat Norwich but it wasn't a joyous riotous semi-finals. Often they were with Everton in the 1980s. This was a very sombre Villa Park uh, because news was already filtering through. So you know if you you go from there the 19-year-old Andy Burnham at Villa Park to the uh, what was then I think the 39-year-old Andy Burnham at Anfield on the day of the 20th anniversary and and I agonised David about whether or not I uh, should go and accept that invitation because I knew I had nothing to say. I knew I was in a government that hadn't done enough for Liverpool supporters, indeed for the whole city. But in the end, my decision to go was born out of a, a decision in some ways to step outside of the, the tram lines of government. And I um, decided that I was going to go. And in the words of my younger brother, who gave me this advice, go if you're going to do something for the families, is what what my younger brother John said to me. And I kind of went there very much with that with that intention you know to to use the, the the moment to break out of the the impasse that uh the hillsborough families had found themselves in but yes i don't think my political career was ever the same after that i'd kind of made a break from the path that i was on i'd changed path if you like and i'd kind of seen how to be honest with you you know you You kind of have to be be prepared to act independently at at times in life to to make change happen. And that was certainly a big moment of change for me.
0: When you look back on your days in government, in central government, do you think you didn't act independently enough sometimes? Certainly in the early
1: days of my ministerial career or or in the early days as a, a backbench MP, uh, I don't think I had all of the confidence that I needed at that point to defy the whips and you know step outside of the, the party line. I grew confidence, I think, in my time as a minister, and I began to question elements of Labour's NHS policy when I was uh, the uh, second in command at the Department of Health under Patricia Hewitt. So I was beginning to question things. I arrived as Culture Secretary, and you may remember, David, I was confronted by uh, a controversy that in some ways was a forerunner of the European Super League. This was something called Game 39. And my very traditionalist instincts when it comes to football uh, told me that this was an outrage to the norms and the the traditions of English football. Uh, But I was very much under a sort of instruction from uh, number 10 that this was to be supported because the Premier League was to be supported. And uh, that was one of the first quite big acts of defiance when i said no i wouldn't be doing that and i couldn't support uh, game 39 in, in any way shape or form but i guess then you know in my time as culture secretary i began to develop that that confidence that comes with being a cabinet minister to the point where i then attended anfield on the 20th anniversary at my own instigation by the way it was not a you know a formally approved government uh, uh, speaking commitment this was my decision to go and uh, my decision to to then try and reopen things beyond that i
0: want to I want to come back to to football and sport in a moment, but as far as politics is concerned, when did your passion for politics begin what's your what's your first political memory my first political memory is watching boys from the black stuff
1: with my mum and dad and asking questions about what this was all about and why were people Uh, you know living like this obviously a city that was just down the road from where i where i grew up and i guess that was the start of the 1980s you go forward a few years um to the mid-1980s i was growing up in the lee area which i in the end came to represent in parliament but that was very much the heart of the lancashire coalfield i used to go past parkside colliery on my way to school every every morning so you know that that was an experience that um, you know brought home some of the the injustices, if you like, of that of that era. I was at school with many people whose dads were miners, so I kind of had a sense of how they had to live in that in that period. But it was, as I say, the nineteen-year-old me that that saw firsthand the injustice of Hillsborough because many of my friends were Liverpool supporters. So I guess the nineteen-eighties was a pro was a sort of a process was underway where I was being a bit radicalised, really by what i perceived to be the injustices happening around me and ultimately to my friends cuz you know those were my friends at, who were at hillsborough uh, that uh, that day and when i saw them then being blamed uh, for what happened you know that that was a that was itself quite a life changing uh, experience and had uh, taken me very much towards politics by the time that i was uh, leaving university and trying to make my make my way in the world and i guess what's always Kind of characterize my politics, David. Is this sense of the North not being treated as fairly and as equally as as other parts of the country? I, I kind of had that sense being at Cambridge. You know, I, I went from a very depressed Northwest England in in the late nineteen eighties to study at Cambridge, and kind of had this first sense of, oh my goodness, this country is is two countries actually. Um, there is a totally different world here. Throughout my life, actually, I've kind of felt I've lived in those two worlds with one foot in in both. You know the world where I grew up and the world where I then sought to try and make my way in my career. And I've always struggled to relate one to the other because they are so different. England is so different, isn't it, in different, in different places. And um, that's kind of shaped my politics, I guess.
0: Were you always Labour? Always. From what sort of age would you say you would have, you would have said to yourself, I am Labour? Oh, that would have been from, I guess, Eleven,
1: twelve. You know, um, so my mum and dad were not uh, Labour councillors, members. They weren't even, you know, they weren't activists, but they were Labour people. Um, and the talk in our house was, you know, very much around Labour politics. I remember my mum voting SDP to the great and lasting shame of my dad. <laughs> you know, they, I'm, I'm joking, but that that was something that was a source of very big conversation in, in my house in the in in the early '80s. So. No, I very much, you know, died in the wool, I guess. And the tradition I came from in terms of my family tradition was you were as kind of loyal to your, your political team as you were to your football team. I think what happened was when I actually they eventually arrived in the Commons, I, I got a shock in that I kind of thought all Labour MPs would act as a real team and everyone would be completely loyal to the team. And I got a surprise when I found actually that was not how some people uh, worked. And I'll be honest and say that... My, my loyalty to the Labour Party has been tested at times uh, over the years. And, uh, yeah, that's, you know, it's been easier to support Everton sometimes than it's been to support the Labour Party.
0: When I knew I was going to talk to you today, you know, I've, I've read quite a bit about people asking who is the real Andy Burnham. It's interesting the word loyalty keeps coming up. As well, I mean, they talk about. It, I suppose the two leadership bids you've had. You know, he was he the continuity candidate in 2010, the soft left candidate of 2015, and yet it appears to those who observe you now that you are looking for a new title, tag, whatever that word is, going forward, which is more satisfactory than either of those two titles.
1: I guess. I'm kind of working class Labour in, in terms of my or orig- you know, my instincts. Um But you're not old Labour, are you? No, I was no not well, I, I kind of I, I guess I was a mix, uh, David. You know, when Tony Blair stood up and said tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, that was quite a big moment actually, because to me that was working class Labour finding its voice because crime affects the least affluent areas the most and you know labor needs to speak directly to that so that kind of spoke to me i guess i've got kind of those instincts that you would have um in areas like lee where i was with the mp you know strong support for the armed forces police but economically quite left-wing actually um and, and always have been um very you know, pro-public services so i've kind of got the sort of Social instincts that are a little bit more old fashioned, I would guess, than you know some of the people I was at university with, or some of the people I was you know came into the Commons with. But then economically, quite left wing, and sometimes that kind of confuses people. I think in terms of, do I sit in the left, or do I sit? You know, where where do I actually I, I sit on the on, on the political spectrum? I, I think you, if you were to characterise it in that lineup of the twenty fifteen Labour leadership election. Where you had, let's say, Jeremy Corbyn at one end, Liz Kendall at another end. I was definitely playing inside left there in that little <laughs> lineup. And that, that is where I fit politically. Um you know, I'm, I'm I'm to the left of New Labour, definitely, and always was,
0: and was even when New Labour was in was in government. When you took yourself away from Westminster 2015-2016, and stood to become mayor, inevitably some people said you'd given up on national politics was there any truth then at least in that or had did you think in those days i might ever go back
1: it was a, it was a you know obviously something i thought very carefully about and you know it was something i discussed very closely with steve rotherham who is the person that i yeah. worked very closely with on on hillsborough and that process of doing that work had kind of led us both to feel that we couldn't really advance the things that we cared about within the Westminster system. And at times within a London-centric Labour Party, it was very, very hard to do that. And I think we were both gripped by a sense of something different was needed. And when these two positions came along at the same time, Mayor of Greater Manchester, Mayor of the Liverpool city region, we, we kind of decided together to see if we could make this thing work. You know, could we do something different? Could we get the voice of the North heard more clearly? loudly if we were to work together uh, building up these new, uh, new, new mayoralties and, and you know that was a very conscious decision that we, we took. And you used a phrase before David about you know, the real Andy Burnham, I definitely feel that people have seen the real me in this role in a way that they didn't uh, in my time in Westminster. I'm not saying that I wasn't, you know, good times myself, I was, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I was a completely different person. But there is a difference within the Westminster system when you're being told to vote in a certain way, when you're being told to stick to a particular line when you go on question time. I think that's one of the reasons why politicians often don't come over to the public, because it's very rare that politicians are speaking absolutely directly with their own personal voice and personal opinions. Whereas in this role, I feel I can do that. You know, I I don't answer to... I don't get told what to do by anybody you know other than the people of Greater Manchester. and because of that, I, can, I know them, I've grown up amongst them. I'm you know kind of familiar with the way people think and feel here. And I think because of that, I, I articulate my views knowing all of that, and I think it comes over stronger as a, as a result of, of that, rather than sort of working through the sort of prism of the whip system and all, all the rest of it that goes with Westminster.
0: So what have you learned about yourself about Andy Burnham as mayor? I mean is the pressure greater or lesser? Do you feel under greater or lesser pressure than you did as a in a cabinet in a sometimes i un, very unpopular cabinet? Yeah. These days you you seem to, you seem much more at ease <laughs> even but you know there there's Andy Burnham standing in the middle of Peter Square giving it a bit of welly putting it mildly <laughs> and you seem like the Andy Burnham I know yeah yeah i i i do i mean the the ease comes from the fact that
1: i just know the ground that i'm standing on and it's ground that i'm familiar with and knowledgeable about i think the unease if that if the opposite of that was on an, on a, on show sometimes when i was in westminster is sometimes defending positions that you're not entirely 100% comfortable with or, or familiar with. So I guess the ease that, that maybe comes over that uh, I have doing this role is, is just, you know, when, when I'm going out on a position, it's not, I'm not doing it for actually party political grandstanding, to be honest, I'm not trying necessarily to further the interests of the Labour Party, I'm doing my job and doing my job means kind of speaking as, as directly as I can, for the people here who, who I really care about. And, and that, that is, I guess, what comes over. Is, is it, is it uh, easier? Definitely not. I thought I was signing up for A Quieter Life when I left <laughs> Westminster, David, but it definitely hasn't turned out uh, like that. I, I think in Westminster, when you travel down on a Monday, I, have no, I mean no disrespect, actually, to my, my former colleagues. The job they do is hard and you know, I've got a lot of time for anybody who does it of any political persuasion. But Westminster itself—I mean, people talk about a bubble. It does—you you do kind of become a little insulated once you're in that sort of inside that security cordon, and you're in that Westminster world. You know, the, the stresses of the constituency surgery on Friday start to melt start to melt away a little bit when you get down to Strangers Bar on a Monday on a Monday night, and it's a, a very different world that you're you're in. Whereas in this job, I'm very much directly confronting the issues that matter to people you know I, I will go out of my house and I'll you know people will want to talk to me about various things I'm in the city centre all of the time I'm talking to you from the city centre now and I've been at, living here throughout the summer and you know it creates a very direct form of politics that actually I quite enjoy though I've never shied away from that I don't shy away from that I would rather be in the pub or you know, in the park and just people wander over and say, have you thought about this or why aren't you doing that? That's the way I like to do, do politics, David, and I, I draw strength from that direct contact with the public. And so it's the whole, the whole way of doing this job is different to the way uh, I used to do my old job, and I, and I hope it works, works better for people.
0: How do you react when people call you
1: king of the north? I'm not even king of my own house, so I, I, it's an odd <laughs> title to be uh, to be to be to be given. I mean, obviously, part of me just thinks you know, the, I, I like the idea that I'm so associated with the North. I mean, people used to ridicule me for it in Parliament, and I, I was my own worst enemy at times. You know, the, was that people being pompous? There's a bit of that. I mean, Westminster does like to sort of look down its nose at, at, at regional accents, no question uh, about it, and so does parts of the national media, and. I've always told the story that when I used to share an office with James Pennell, you know, good friend of mine, when big issues would break in the media, our, our phones would go as young backbenchers. His, would, we were in the same <laughs> office. His would buzz, mine would buzz. His would always be Radio Four, and mine would always be Radio Five Live. Never, never the other <laughs> way, ra- never the other way round. And yeah, I yeah. think there's something about that, isn't there? In in you know, class and an accent, kind of still has a a, a sort of uh, creates challenges for, for people but I, I guess I was my own worst enemy you know I was professional northerner at times if you like you know the caricature but it's nice to see it kind of come come full circle I, I think I like the idea now that people know I will advocate for the north and if any government or anybody does anything that does us down that they can expect to hear from me I, you know, I, I like that but there are many more people out there who were who are deserving of the uh, the title king of the north uh, than, than I am but you know I I just think the, the whole purpose of what we're doing here through devolution is trying to build the voice of the North. And if that's kind of working to a degree, then, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pleased that, that people are responding
0: to that. This is not a, com- uh, a conversation about policies per se, but what is the future, do you think, Andy, for cities like Manchester post-pandemic? I mean, has Covid changed not everything but an awful lot? It's certainly changed an awful lot,
1: but it's actually changed some things for the better. Um, for example, well, we've seen, you know we've seen the city innovating in in various ways with regard to transport, active travel, uh, green space. Um, you know, and, and the hospitality industry Manchester looks very continental right now. You know, you go outside and you'll see tables and chairs like could be. Could look like brussels in, in in parts of it or paris you know there's lots of outdoor seating areas outside the bars it looks...
0: the weather's still a problem you haven't done much about that yeah the we, there's
1: really? a little bit of a problem i can't claim it's got much better in in my tenure <laughs> but um uh, actually though last week time out declared manchester the third best city in the world which is a big a big statement after san francisco and amsterdam and i I would argue we're certainly better than Amsterdam, I, I would say. But you would say, well, why? Or how, on what basis have, has Manchester been given that, that accolade? And when I spoke to the timeout team, they were saying, it's not about your restaurants. And we, we, to a degree it is. And yes, we do like your music scene. And you know, the, obviously Ronaldo back and football couldn't be more prominent in, in Manchester. So there's so much going on. But the award was given for the warmth of the welcome, the friendliness of the people. The genuine solidarity that we have here uh, between people of different backgrounds—you know—the the, the city, as you know, David, has has got something um, that others others don't. You know, there, and there's been this radical tradition here of always looking to uh, change things in the interests of the many, and you know, not not the few. You know, this is a city that, well, I, I always celebrate the fact that you know, all those years ago in the 1860s, the Manchester mill workers wouldn't handle slave-picked cotton. You know, they were saying black lives matter all those centuries uh, ago. You know, there's, there's a real belief here in our equality and common humanity. And, and, and the, you know, the, that gets recognised by uh, organisations like Time Out. You know, this city has got something pretty unique going for it, I think. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of that, actually. It's a, it's a fantastic place to work and represent.
0: You've been critical of the prime ministers, the governments, this government's uh, levelling up proposals. And is it fair to say levelling up, you support in principle, but not in practice as it's worked out? Is that as it's working out? Is that is that a fair summary?
1: Yes, a good it's a good summary. Um, I I certainly uh, agree in principle, it's the right theme. I've waited all my life for a government to come along and say regional inequality is the top order issue of the day. I think that's a brilliant thing. And I'm not going to say it's not, because a different government to mine has come along and said it. I've given George Osborne credit, David, for being uh, the first chancellor to speak passionately about the North that I, I could remember. And that's not easy to say, but you've got to, I think in life sometimes you've got to say it as it is, haven't you? What I think George, uh, Boris and others haven't done is put substance behind the, the, the very impressive words. Uh, and they really haven't done that and actually if you go back to that 2019 general election when levelling up was promised and we were you know there was a manifesto that was promising a huge amount of things to us we've gone further behind in that time since then and that's what that row last year was about they they didn't in my view appreciate the full impact of of the pandemic on the north of england they put us under restrictions without financial support and yeah we were very actively being levelled down uh, for much of 2020 so no, I, I, I think it's a very accurate summary that, that, that you've given. I'm not, though, um, ruling out that it might, you know, it could actually come to pass. So let me just come to it very directly. If the government was to support us to build a London style public transport system, effectively where we integrate buses and trams into a single system with, you know, contactless, tap in, tap out, with, and here's the crucial bit London level fares. So if they gave Greater Manchester, bus journeys at £1.55 a go, and no charge if you then got on another bus within an hour, a daily cap on, on what you can spend of, what, 8 or £9, that would be a game-changer for Greater Manchester. Because at the moment, you know, the cost of a single bus journey can be over £4, and you can't use the ticket on a different operator, and you certainly don't get any benefit when you go on a tram because it's all fragmented. If, if the government will back us on building a London-style public transport system that connects 2.8 million people here to jobs and opportunity, then, then I'm going to be prepared to say, well, that is levelling up. You know, that, that is what they deserve credit for. So the Conservatives are coming to Manchester for their conference in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to reach out and say, look, let's do a levelling up deal together. You know, here we have a plan for a London-style public transport system. I've pulled the lever on bus franchising. We are bringing buses here back under public control. And that creates the opportunity to integrate this under one roof, as London has done. Back us on it, and then, you know, we'll both be able to say three years down the line that that the levelling up has begun in earnest to happen because Greater Manchester has a dramatically better transport system than the one it had before this government came in.
0: But can mayors, can a Labour mayor really make a difference with a Conservative central government with a majority of 80? I think that's up to them. I mean, if, do they want levelling up or do they not, is
1: the question I would put back to them. And if they do, they're going to have to work with mayors of all colour, but also Labour mayors. You can't level up the north of England if you're refusing to work with Labour mayors. Simple as that, really. So the government has to decide, really. If it's, you know, oh, well, we'll, we'll work with that mayor there, but we're, no, we don't like the look of that one over over there... Leveling up will become the next divisive issue for the country after Brexit and COVID. It will just carry on the divided times that we've been living in. The time has come in my view, David, after this pandemic to bring the country back together and you know to really make levelling up happen. I'm quite happy for them to hold me to account. So I'm saying we will deliver a London-style public transport system by 2024. In doing so, we'll reduce this many tonnes of carbon from our public transport system. Um, going beyond that, we will level up these towns with better transport infrastructure. So I'm quite happy for the government to say, right, those are the promises, and we're going to now hold you to account to deliver them. And it'll be Andy Burnham in front of the Public Accounts Committee if, if it's going wrong. I don't mind that at all. You know, I've heard what the government has been saying about they want more accountability. That's, that's fine. I'm more than happy to accept that. But in return, they need to back me with the power and the resources needed to truly level up
0: a city region
1: as you know as
0: vast we've, as this one we've talked this far and we haven't mentioned the word the name boris i mean do you like him i don't think i know him particularly um do you speak to him regularly i i, I always wonder about the relationship between the mayor of a great city like manchester and the prime minister i mean do you speak to him once a week once a month so I, I've always tried in this job, David, to to
1: speak as I find and not just give you a a stock political answer that's like a, you know... So when he first got elected as Prime Minister, or or came in as Prime Minister, he came to Manchester, if you remember. He he delivered a famous speech in front of Stevenson's rocket in the um, Museum of Science and Industry. And we had a a chat after it, which was great, to be honest, because I said to him, I could have given some of the speech (laughs) you just gave and he was very clear about you know transport integrating public transport you know bring it under public control you know and we had a lot of common ground uh, there and then the pandemic landed we had one conversation earlier in the year that was with a, a number of other mayors a phone call in the summer of 2020 which was okay where i was saying to him look we're struggling here but we need a bit more help from you and you know and then the last conversation directly I had with him was on the day when you saw me outside the Bridgewater Hall, when I asked him to support our ask for a, an 80% furlough for those uh, staff who were going to see their places of work closed down. And the government didn't agree to that. And, and then that brought us out, you know, into, into those different positions. So that's the last time we, we spoke. But obviously, I've, since then, I've had many other contacts with other ministers and um, many of them quite positive. It's why, though, when they're coming to Manchester in a few weeks' time, I'm saying, look, let's draw a line under 2020 and the pandemic and look now to leveling up this country. You know, th- th- this country needs bringing back together. It needs central government to work with entities like the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. You can't level up from 200 miles away in Whitehall. You have to work with us. Uh, but if you do, you know, we can help you achieve what you want to achieve, which is a more regionally equal country, and we support that as well.
0: There's another party leader called Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, Do you know him rather better than Boris? Yes, I do. Um, I was very fortunate,
1: David, uh, to work with uh, Sir Keir in um, my Shadow Home Office team. I was Shadow Home Secretary. He joined my uh, team uh, after the 2015 uh, leadership election. Keir was a new MP at the time. And I'd be honest. I was thinking, oh my goodness, a former director of public prosecutions is working in my. It was a, as a, a lowly shadow minister in my team, but there was no airs and graces at all. He absolutely knuckled down and uh, got to work uh, on his brief. And it was actually a real pleasure to work with with Keir in that in that period uh, of time. So, yeah, I I do know him uh, well, a man of complete
0: decency. Um, and and does he listen to you? Do you think your he listens to the things you tell him about what is happening in Manchester.
1: I I, I, I hope so. I mean, obviously, he got a lot of voices in in his uh, ear, um, and you know, I I'm, if you like, coming at things in a slightly different way in terms of the way I'm going about raising the issues that matter uh, directly to to Greater Manchester. Um, I I think yes, I think he is listening. He's made a couple of visits uh, here now uh, certainly over public transport where i've said to, to Keir, you know the only answer is to fully support bringing public transport under public control subsidies that match london you know, I, I yes I, we've had a really you know a, a fair hearing on that more recently i've spoken out on social care yeah and i would like to see labor back the idea i put forward as as shadow health secretary a national care service uh, they're yet to do that fully, but I hope they will. So yes, I think they, they, they do listen. Do they listen to every single thing I say? Well, nobody will ever get everything that they want, will they? But no, they are, they are listening. And I think there is the first signs of a real change here where Labour is understanding that London centricity has been part of its problem and is, is starting to make some real
0: changes. You'll be thrilled to know. I'm not going to ask you, do you want to be the next Labour leader? Because I think just about everybody in the world asks you that. I mean, I think it's a fair summary to say you support Sir Keir Starmer and who knows what the future is going to be. I mean, that seems to me to be a summary of what you say. But there is one thing here that worries people. Do you you worry about going back? I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo may be able to go back to Manchester United, but... You know, going back to something like Westminster and the front bench and all the rest of it, is that good news for you? Really, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing to be interviewed
1: by you, David, because you know my mind almost as well as I I know my my mind, and I do worry about that. Um, Going back is never... It seems to me a very attractive thing in life, is it you know it didn 't work for howard Kendall uh, whether it will work for cristiano ronaldo i i, I don't i don 't know uh, maybe it will so you know I, yes i 'm supporting Keir. I, I want to I, I want to build English devolution to a point where it 's irreversible i think it 's getting close to that point i 'm not sure we 're fully at it yet, uh, but that is very much the mission that i'm i 'm on at the moment. But, you know, there is part of me that's kind of, there's unfinished business uh, there. You know, I, I have very strong views. I've, I've, I've now come to a position in my, my political career where I have real clarity about what I think the country needs. Uh, I think it, it does need a national care service to deal once and for all with that issue of social care. It does need public transport under public control uh, in all of the big cities uh, outside of, of London. We need a very different approach to housing, where housing is a, a human right enshrined in UK law, uh, so that everyone has the chance of a of a of a good life. I think the country does need to be completely rewired. Um, I think we need uh, substantial devolution to all parts of England, complete reform of the House of Lords to a Senate of the nations and regions, uh, and I've now come around to the idea of a more proportional Commons because I don't, you know, the. The interests of the regions are not fairly represented in the current political system. So, I guess to the extent that I do see myself going back one day, it would be to, to kind of carry out some of that fundamental change that I've now you know I'm really clear about uh, what what I would like uh, like to see. The bit that worries me is would I be happy if I if I uh, went back? Because I am very much happy in this in this current role, and I I, I worry that you know the the um, the westminster lifestyle again was you know is 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 often not conducive with enjoying uh, enjoying life uh, but uh, anyway that's uh, that's for another day maybe
0: you and i came together recently with others seeking an independent football regulator don't you find it extraordinary that english football that you've said and you care so much about has no agreed priorities and cannot speak with one voice after all these years? I do. And I look
1: back uh, to that time when we were on the Football Task Force together at David, where I kind of first was confronted by those different voices from the Premier League, the Football League and the PFA. And, you know, it was something of a shock really, to be honest, to, to see that. And yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me how, you know, all of the things we spoke about then as being risks to the English game, Well, they, apologies, they came came to pass, didn't they? You know, the threat to clubs lower down, Bury is the, you know, the salutary lesson uh, from Greater Manchester, the growing inequality. Yeah, it all all came to pass. And it still troubles me that English football, parts of it anyway, are fighting stronger, more independent regulation. Because in the end, strong regulation guarantees the health of everybody, doesn't it? It may not be pleasant, but... Good regulation means that the the whole remains healthy. Um, And, you know, I I made reference before to other industries like buses. I think in this country, we kind of got ourselves into a position that money and the markets would solve everything. But actually, in the end, they start to destroy some of the things that made things what they were in the first place. And I just think English football, I hope, doesn't kind of move on from the European Super League thing and say, oh, well, that was just a blip and it won't happen again. It could happen again. And we need proper change now to stop it happening again and guarantee a an english game that will captivate you know today's teenagers as much as it captivated you and i back in the 60s and 70s
0: and the other issue that we we both care about is i mean particularly in football is this issue of the the racist trolls who are yeah continue, it's, it's it's quite gets quite beyond me that when there are solutions around that can make a difference, Every people, when there is a bad incident, like after the Euro final, people say, oh, this is terrible, we've got to do something about it. And then it goes away. And it seems to me it, quite extraordinary that the priority there, the pressure there that can come from, it's a classic example where government can make a difference with the football authorities and the social media companies? And I think it has, actually. So if, I, if you think of
1: that late 90s period, I'm going to praise you now. You were a very enlightened voice on the task force on these issues. And not all of football was in the same place, David, was it, if you remember? No. <laughs> there were <laughs> some voices <laughs> saying, oh, no, no more action was needed, it was fine. and uh, And it wasn't, was it? And we took steps in that period to change things for the better so if you remember it was only racist chanting at matches that was an offence but it was unenforceable because you know obviously how do you prosecute a chant from all of these anonymous people in a uh in a home end and we changed the law if you remember to make individual comments a a criminal offence and what i feel is that that did move things forward but almost social media has allow the, the anonymity of the crowd to return, isn't it? And people to hide behind a cloak of anonymity in, in perpetrating their vile abuse. But actually, to be honest, I, you know, we can all criticise football on some things, but I think on this, it has been ahead of society, I think, over a long period of time, you know, and it's continued to make, make change happen. I, I couldn't have been more proud of Gareth and the, the England team in the summer. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant what they what they did, the courage of their convictions. You know, for the first time in my life, I think we had an England team that was fully in tune with the vast majority of decent people in the country. And that hasn't always been the case. And you know that, don't you, from the, your, your background in terms of the some of the unsavory elements that have followed England over over the years. Finally, this England team could be enjoyed and owned by everybody. And it was a wonderful thing to experience. And I just think that that was evidence that English football continues to run ahead of the wider societal argument on on issues to do with race, and I think that's that's to its great credit. So we can criticize it in some ways. I think it's been ahead of the game in, in other ways, and um, you know that's that that's a great thing.
0: And sport and football can make
1: a difference to society, uh, definitely, and, and and they do. And just look at Marcus Rashford uh, at the moment. You know, I think we're seeing a generation of players now that are 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 different, actually, in terms of the way they're prepared to use the platform that they have and it is a bigger platform isn't it players were big in our day you know they were big names but they don't have the personal platform that some of these players have today but they are using it and they're using it to good effect it's not just uh, Marcus it's Raheem it's it's a lot of those players in the in the England team you know they they we we used to talk about when will players accept their responsibility as role models when we were on, we were on the football task force all those years ago well you can say now they are they really are and it's, it's kind of impressive, isn't it? Because they are communicating with that younger generation. They are, you know, they're doing a more effective job than politicians at times in moving uh, government policy. I, I, I think that's a good thing. I don't see, you know, football is society, isn't it? It's the thing that in many ways binds people more together than anything else these days. As You know, kind of the church and other things have got into decline. Trade unions are not what maybe they once were. You know, football is still the thing that you, you know, brings people together more than anything and therefore it has to be a vehicle for good in society. And I think largely it is. Largely it is. You know, we can criticise how it's run and we can criticise the wealth at the top of the sport and we do do that. But let's be fair as well and balance it up. You know, football, I see it in this city, David, you know, both United and City and particularly City over the years, to be honest. The contribution they make in their communities is is massive. It's appreciated and, you know, they, they they enhance the lives of people here
0: qu- quite immeasurably, to be honest. Final question that we ask all our guests, and I must put it to you. How does Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, relax <laughs> these days? How do you relax? Running. I know that sounds odd when you ask me, how do I
1: relax? And I come back and say running, but it strangely does relax me in that it takes my brain into a, sort of a different place when I just go for a run and it almost is sort of neutral space at times you know it is a stress reliever and I've become more and more of a runner I, I just did the great north run I thought I'd better get this boasted before the end David of one hour <laughs> 55 on uh, Sunday which was pretty good so running um does does help me a lot um but it then it will be Music. I, I had a big weekend, not just running the Great North Run, but going to watch New Order at, um, at Heaton Park. I took the great Peter Reed with me. Just get your get your mind around that for a minute, uh, uh, David. I took Peter Reed on a night out to New Order at Heaton Park, which was
0: my goodness, and you're still alive to tell <laughs> the tale.
1: Was... Every night's a big night with Peter, and it was yeah, um, yeah. absolutely terrific. Though you know, just the the response that he gets from people being out and about. So we were with all my family, and Peter was with us, and. Just being with him and chatting about Everton things and that that was real relaxation. That was that was uh, wonderful. So music is a big thing. You know, I you know, I was at Goodison last night. You know, that takes me out of my out of my uh, myself for a, a couple of hours and and then just the usual things. You know, just the, I don't know the odd beer and match of the day and, and goodness. And just... Looking
0: after the dog in the yeah, background. Yeah, well, he,
1: he takes some looking after as you can see. He's uh, got little man syndrome. He's got a bit of an attitude on, on him, but uh, no, that, that that helps us as well but um i would definitely say the running has been a big thing actually in re- recent times you know it's not just the run itself but when you come back i think it helps me relax and switch off from work and uh, yeah i don't know what i'd do without it
0: andy burnham it's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you thank you so much
1: thank you very much indeed david
0: Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.